want to consider those words just for a few moments tonight. Tonight, of course, is Christmas Eve. Tomorrow is Christmas Day, two days that we uh, have all heard of. But I wonder if you've ever heard of Blue Monday. You may not have heard of it, but you might have experienced it. One particular travel agency in the UK tried to identify the most depressing day of the year. And uh, the study, of course, took place in their context, and they considered a number of factors and basically concluded that it's either the third or fourth Monday in January. They take several factors into consideration, including weather conditions, so that would uh, mean it's only for the northern hemisphere. But the other factors that they uh, uh, use to, to determine, uh, to make their determination that it's the third or fourth January, uh, uh, Monday in January is Christmas is over, there are no more gifts, no more parties, the lights are put away, their credit cards are appearing, the diet is underway, or New Year's resolutions are either underway or already broken, and it's really dark outside. Well, a Monday in January is not the only time of year, of course, that a person can feel this way. You can feel down on a Tuesday in August. The question is, how do we deal with Blue Mondays? How do we deal with dark days? Well, Christmas tells us the good news that in Jesus Christ, the light has dawned. In the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our discouragement, His light brings us joy. Now, at a most basic level, we understand the value of light, don't we? And I think as you consider light, you can consider some of the analogous ways in which the ministry of Christ um, ministers to us. For example, light causes a reaction. Kids, don't you love it when it's dark and you're sleeping well and your parents turn the lights on all of a sudden and wake you up? Light gets a reaction, and so it was when Christ came. John tells us that some received him, some rejected him, but no one ignored him. Light also brings life. Generally speaking, things grow in the light, and it is in Christ that we have spiritual life. Light also symbolizes truth and goodness and beauty and purity. Where darkness symbolizes falsehood, sin, corruption, evil, distress. I'm sure many of you uh, recently watched the new Rings of Power. I really tried to watch Rings of Power. I just couldn't stay awake uh, every episode. It was better than melatonin. Um, but uh, I'm going to give it another go eventually. But I do remember one scene that was so striking in episode four when... Uh, uh, Erendur and the others were escaping from this dark wooded forest and the orcs were chasing them and then they make it out to this uh, sunny clearing and the orcs could not go out into the sun. They could not go out into the light. And John tells us that people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You see, it is light that symbolizes that which is good and beautiful and pure and true and that's what Jesus has come to bring into this dark world. Light also provides safety. I'm sure many of you wanted to sleep with the lights on when you were young. Maybe you still do. Thieves often operate in the dark, those filthy animals, as Home Alone puts it. Um, and it is a life of, uh, outside of Christ could be a life of fear, but Jesus has come to bring us peace. His light has come to bring this kind of security. Light provides healing. People often move to warmer, sunnier climates for health reasons, don't they? And this, this time of year, every year, I'm thinking, man, when is summer coming? When can we go to the beach again? Because I need some vitamin D. And in Jesus Christ, the light has brought the ultimate healing. And light brings joy. 
When the sun comes out after periods of darkness, people generally get happier. And there's a reason why vampires typically come from the Pacific Northwest and not sunny Hawaii. It's because they don't have any sun. That's why the Brits don't smile. They they, they just don't have any sun. They smile on the inside, as one told me one time. Um, And it is in this text as well that light is associated with joy. The coming of Jesus Christ has brought the joy. And there are lots of lights this time of year. Christmas is called often a festival of lights, and this is a candlelight service. And I pray that all the illusions and all the illustrations of light would draw our attention tonight to the ultimate light, to Jesus Christ. For the promise of this light in Isaiah chapter 9 strengthened the faith of the remnant and the fulfillment of these words tonight strengthen our faith as we consider them. And I want us to briefly consider tonight the news of the Messiah or the news of the light, the nature of the Messiah or the nature of this light and then our need for the Messiah. The news is given in the first five verses of what we just read. I won't go into great detail upon it, but in chapter 8, it's all doom and gloom. As Isaiah is writing in his context, it was a time of great idolatry, a time of corruption. People were uh, insecure. They were fearful. Uh, much could be said for our world today with a lot of idolatry and fear, false sources of hope. And it is into this situation that Isaiah proclaims the good news that light is coming. And this light is coming to the Galilee of the nations, Now this was shocking. If God were going to do something big, wouldn't he do it in Jerusalem? Wouldn't he do it in some significant place instead of Podunkville, Galilee, Tarboro of the nations, Bun of the nations, right? And this was indicative of the whole coming of Jesus. There was no fanfare at his birth. He's he's laid in a manger, but this is our God. He often works in unexpected ways. He's in the Galilee of the nations. This was a place of great ethnic diversity. This was a place geographically that was war-torn as the enemies of Israel often came in from the north. And God would send the Messiah. Matthew would cite these verses, the first two verses, to introduce the ministry of Jesus. He would send his son to the place where his people had suffered the most. And so here it is that Isaiah says, God is going to do something. And Isaiah is so sure of it, verse 2, he uses what we call in Hebrew the prophetic perfect. He says something is going to happen as if it had already happened. That's what he says in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And that, of course, did come true as Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world. And then Isaiah begins to talk about God's intervention, speaking of the near and the far, speaking of the original day, of, of, of God's people suffering, of how God will intervene, and it describes the nature of our God when he intervenes, and that then funnels into the ultimate intervention as he sends Christ into the world, verse 6. So this is the way God operates. You multiplied the nation, you increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. You see all of this language of joy, that, that when the people were suffering, when there was darkness, God would intervene, and when God intervenes, there's an explosion of joy. And then he begins to talk about how God would free his people, break the yoke, verse 4, very Exodus-like language of how God would deliver his people. And then he has an allusion to Midian. That's a, a, a story in the book of Judges when Gideon, with his little army, went up against the trained Midianites and won the battle. And this is reflective of how God has operated throughout history. 
He would operate in surprising ways. He would use an unlikely hero like Gideon and ultimately would use an unlikely uh, individual born in Bethlehem to win the battle for us in a very unlikely way through death. This is what God does. He breaks chains. He frees captives. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, we just sang. And God has a history of destroying the enemy, so much so, verse 5, that it says even the, 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 uh, the boots and the garments of the enemies will be destroyed. And one day the Messiah will burn the boot of our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death forevermore and bring everlasting peace and instruments of war will no longer be needed. This is how Isaiah introduces God's intervention in a dark time in Israel's history. And as he's thinking close by in the near future, he also begins to think long-term in the distant future for no leader in Israel could ever fulfill what is said in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Notice here the nature of the Messiah. His birth is, is uh, described in a very striking way, that a child, a son, is given. So you see the humanity of Jesus. He is a child. He is a son. He's born like a baby. He was small, born of woman, as Paul puts it in Galatians 4. Jesus did the things babies do. Jesus didn't have a halo around his head. We often sing that song, No Crying He Makes, which was not, is not correct. It's a very lovely song, except it's just not true there. Um, other than that, it's great. Uh, but, but he is fully human, but you see his deity as well, that a son is given. We read in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son. More on his deity, the government will be upon his shoulder. Tons of conversation today centers around this, right? Who should be responsible for governing the nation? Who should be responsible in government? And our deep longing for perfect and unending government is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound good that one day the government will be on Jesus' shoulders? But before the government would be upon his shoulders, the cross would be upon his shoulders. And we await the day in which he comes to reign once and for all forever. That's his birth. You see his names mentioned at the end of verse 6. Four names that describe Jesus' unique identity. These are titles that you could, you could only give to God. You wouldn't name a child this, I don't think. I don't know if you've ever seen the book 7,000 Baby Names. You probably won't find Wonderful Counselor. Let's call him that. Even though sometimes I get letters from families, I'm sure you do too, giving you the whole rundown of the whole family and their kids seem like Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, that's what your kid's name should be. Uh, but the rest of us, it's John, it's Jim. But the, these names are titles of Jesus for his work. In our confusion and in our despair, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. In Isaiah's day, they were consulting various sorts of teachers, various kinds of counselors, mediums, uh, conspiracy theories. You see that mentioned in chapter 8. And here in Jesus Christ, we find the right place to look for supernatural counsel. Jesus has the words of life, and we build our lives upon his word. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let Jesus counsel you with his word. 
that you may experience his freedom, his joy, his peace. In our weakness, he is our mighty God. It's a mystery of mystery, isn't it, that the baby born in Bethlehem is called mighty God. Or as the text we'll look at in the morning in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, sustaining all things. And it's good news tonight to know that weary saints have a strong Savior. He is mighty God. And in our need for love, he is our everlasting Father. This is a statement about the fatherly care of Jesus. In the Gospels, we often see Jesus calling individuals son or daughter with affection. He was fatherly toward his disciples, and he's fatherly toward us. He is our tender Savior, our merciful Savior. And when our soul is troubled, he is our Prince of Peace. Lots of people recently paid attention to uh, the, the world of, of soccer. Pastor Rico Tice reminds us of what might be the most famous soccer match of all time. On Christmas Day in 1914, with the First World War a few months old, British and German soldiers on the front lines of France left their trenches, met up in no man's land, and played a game of soccer. The results were unrecorded, but the rumors are the Germans won on penalties. And it was a moment of peace in the midst of war, one of the most brutal wars ever fought. And that's why it's mentioned. These guys are playing soccer in the middle of a war. Can you have peace in the midst of a war? In Jesus Christ, you can. The war rages all around us. And in Jesus Christ, we can know a peace that surpasses all human understanding. And we look forward to the day when Jesus comes again and brings what the Bible calls shalom, total peace, total healing, where he will reign forever. That's what Isaiah calls him. Those are his names. And then he mentions his kingdom in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no end to this peace, no end to this shalom. Because Jesus is the one who was promised to sit on this throne of David. That great promise that one would sit on David's throne forever. And it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you know, a lot of people today, they don't really have a problem with Jesus being born in a manger. But they don't want Jesus on a cross. They don't want Jesus on a throne. But he is the same Jesus, isn't he? That this Jesus that was born in a manger is reigning from a throne. And he will come again in power and in glory. And Isaiah says he's coming with justice and righteousness. There's that great longing in us being made in the Imago Dei for justice. And we know that this longing for justice points us to Jesus. It's a longing for Jesus. It's a longing for an ultimate king who knows no sin to reign and put all wrongs right. And that's what he's going to do, as John says in Revelation 11. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And who guarantees that this will happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our God is zealous, he is passionate, and he ensures that these things will come to pass. So we see the news of the Messiah, that this news he's coming, he's going to minister in and around Galilee. This news is coming in a dark period in history. We see the nature of this Messiah. But finally notice, as we've already read, our need for the Messiah. You see that all the way through these seven verses, but uh, pay a particular attention to verse 6, these little words, to us. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. 
Christmas is all about grace. It's all about this great gift. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. But you know, in order to receive some gifts, you have to swallow your pride. You won't be thankful for them if you can't do that. I mean, think about this for a moment. How would you respond if someone gave you this Christmas, how would you respond if they gave you a dieting book? Or maybe they gave you a book that, said, that was called How Not to Be a Jerk. Or what if someone gave you a case of deodorant for Christmas? Or if someone gives me a flight to Turkey and coupons for hair plugs, what are they trying to say? You see, sometimes people give you gifts because they think you will like them. But sometimes they give you gifts because they think you need them. And you're only thankful for those latter gifts if you realize you need them. And for the gift of Jesus to change your life, you must say you need him. And we need him, don't we, in the most desperate way. For our condition is not physical, it's not social or anything else. It's spiritual. God loved the world so much that he sent the Savior into the world. God didn't send a physical trainer into the world. He didn't send a life coach into the world. He didn't send a politician into the world. He sent the Savior into the world. For you will call his name Jesus, Matthew says, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's our greatest need. And for Christ to change you, you must admit that you have this problem, you have this need, and you cry out to him to save you. And I pray that you have. <laughs> I pray that you have received this light, the one that has come into this dark world to solve our greatest problems. John puts it this way, very simply in John 12, believe in the light that you may be sons of light. Look to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, that you may become a son or daughter of light. Church, rejoice tonight. The Savior has come. Light has come. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we're following Jesus, this light. And one day, Jesus will return, <coughs> and we will not need the sun, John tells us, for Christ will give, it, give heaven its light. And we're following him into the new creation. So here in a moment, we're going to light our candles. We're going to sing together. And I pray that those lights and these songs would draw our attention to the ultimate light who's come into this dark world for us. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. <clears throat> we thank you for the truth of it, the promises of it, for the encouragement that it gives us, the strength that it gives us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come, Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You are all of these things, and tonight we worship you, we adore you, and we pray even now as we continue our service of singing, that you'd be magnified among us and change us more into your image. And we pray this in your good name. Everybody said, amen.